to the Standardized Patients Podcast. I am your host and comedy nerd, Katie Culligan. In this podcast, we dive into the who, what, why, and huh of this quirky industry that no one's ever heard of. So what's a standardized patient, you may ask? Well, a standardized patient is a... A person trained to act as a real patient in order to simulate a set of symptoms or problems. That voice you just heard is Carol Randolph. Carol is our guest today, and Carol has worked as a standardized patient at several D.C. and Baltimore area med schools since 2007, including nine years' experience as a physical exam teaching associate, PETA, at the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences, USIS, in Silver Spring. Other role play work includes police training, crisis hotline calls, and witnesses in mock trials. Carol's acting credits include performances at Only Theater, Shakespeare Theater Company, First Stage, Chesapeake Shakespeare Company, and Maryland Ensemble Theater, in addition to film and commercial work. Welcome, Carol. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yes, thanks so much for being here. I am excited to have you today. I tracked you down, uh, for lack of a better word, because uh, <laughs> we had actually not met before. I've seen your name around town, but I have seen you posting through the Actor Center, which is a wonderful acting resource that we have in the D.C. metro area, about these workshops about, is SP work right for you? Is standardized patient work right for you? And I've seen these over the years, and because I was already so involved in standardized patient work, I never signed up for one. But I'm grateful that I had the opportunity to listen in on one of yours. And I tracked you down before that and asked if you would maybe be interested in talking on our podcast to explain, you know, what you do in those workshops why you have them, and for anyone out there that might be interested in getting into standardized patient work that's not already in, or maybe would like to get more involved in this type of work, how they could do that. So I really appreciate you being here. Let's just jump right into it. Tell us a little bit about your standardized patient workshops. So when I started, before I started doing SP work, I had heard about this, that you could be a simulated patient at a med school, but I didn't know how to contact anybody or how to get into it. It was really all kind of secret word of mouth stuff that actors shared with each other. So then when I finally did get into it and start learning about all the different schools in the DC Baltimore area, I realized that it would be nice to share that information. And so someone on the Actors Center board suggested I do a workshop. And that's how the workshop started. So I do it twice a year. I hand people with all the schools and how to apply at all the schools, who to contact, what they pay to make it easy. Certainly the schools have made it easier too in all these years since I started. A lot of them have online applications and it's not as secret and mysterious as it seemed when I started, which is good because SP work is made for actors. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. So how was it that somebody on the Actor Center came to you and said, hey, wh why don't you do these workshops? How did that start? She knew that I did standardized patient work and she was trying to add more workshops to the Actors Center. Awesome. And so on an average, about how many people do you typically get that show up to these workshops? 
We get anywhere from 15 to 20 twice a year. Do you ever get people that show up that have already been doing standardized patient work and are just looking to spread their network a little bit more? Once in a while, we get a few people and sometimes we get people who have done it in another city and they've just moved to DC. And so they want to find out about DC work. That totally It, it kind sense. of amazes me that there's so many people who don't know about SP work. Yeah, I have to agree, <laughs> which is one of the reasons we have this podcast. So not only to share with other actors what we do and how they could be part of it, but also just to the people out there that have no idea that this is even a thing or how to get into it. And there are some people out there, I'm sure, that could do it and they've just never even thought about it. So what is some of the most common questions you've gotten during these workshops that you tend to hear a lot of? People are anxious about having to memorize a lot mm. or, or study a lot. And you don't really, you need to remember certain maneuvers that the students are supposed to do or questions they're supposed to ask. There's a checklist that they're graded on. So you have to know that checklist in your head and, and know not to volunteer certain things and to mm. maneuver around that. But the only thing you have to memorize is an opening statement of what's wrong mm -hmm. and why you're there. And then everything else is improv. So do people tend to get reassured when you tell them that? I hope so. I do. I hope so. I think the only other thing maybe that might make some people anxious is that so many of the cases are gowned cases where you're in your underwear with a hospital gown. And mm -hmm. People are poking and prodding at you and it's being recorded and people are watching through a one-way window because it's, it's teaching, it's a teaching environment, you know, but for any actor who's been in a dressing room with a whole cast of people <laughs> in their underwear, it's, it's not that big a stretch. That's fair. That's a good point. Uh, it's just, uh, it's all about perspective, right? Right. <laughs> So those are the common questions you get. Do you get people that come to it and say, you know what, this is just not right for me now that I know all this information, or do you just never hear from those people again? I don't hear from them. I think more often people are reassured that this is a viable line of work. I mean, it really is built for actors. It's mm -hmm. flexible daytime work. You can do anywhere there where there's a med school uh, because there are so many more SP programs now than when I started. And so it's portable. You can take it wherever you go. In our area, if you feel like traveling to Philadelphia or New York, then you've got those markets as well. Yeah. You can be signed up on a school's roster and they can say, are you available? And you can say no. And it doesn't affect whether they're going to ask you again. Right. Right. No. Totally. I, so, I often found though that when, especially when I was first getting into it, the more I said yes, the more they would ask you, you know. That is but, true. But you're right that also just because you say no doesn't mean that they won't ask you again. You, you sometimes just have to say, I don't want to do this anymore for them to not ask you again. Right. I agree. I tried to say yes whenever they asked me and especially when they called me to fill in because somebody else had canceled. Mm. I wanted to be that go-to person that they would contact. Totally. And so you get cases and then you're on the list for that case. And mm -hmm. so the case is repeated. So in a way, it, it does become like script. 
or like, you know, something you're familiar with. You're not always working with something new. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You could be the go-to person or mm-hmm. one of the go-to people for this particular case that they will always ask you, right. you know, I, I did one for years at a school in DC that was every once a month on a Friday morning, eight to 12. And I was one of two SPs that did this particular case. And at some point I, I moved on from that, but that was like something I could kind of count on assuming I didn't right. have anything else going on. Um, and there's a lot of cases and encounters that are built like that where they, they are repeating. Sometimes they repeat once a year. Sometimes they repeat once a month or twice a year. But yeah, you're absolutely right. It can be a real lucrative thing to to be the go-to person. Now, you had mentioned before in your workshop um, some of the stats uh, from the air, the programs that we have around this area. So this is the, the DMV area, Mid-Atlantic region. Tell us a little bit more about that, like certain schools open and who was the first school that started this in the area? I don't know when Uniform Services University started their program. I was in the first group that was trained to be a PETA, but I don't know before that. I don't. I'd been there about a year, and so I it had been in place before that. Innova Fairfax opened in two thousand eight. Howard in two thousand nine, and GW built a whole new facility in two thousand fourteen. Mm-hmm. So generally, the facilities are you know maybe twelve exam rooms that look like regular doctor office rooms with a one way window. They have the exam table, and they have a table with a computer, and they have you know, all the stuff to look in your ears and eyes on the mm-hmm. wall and they have yeah. a thing. So it's, it's made to look like a real doctor's office. Well, USIS has 12. I don't, I, I don't know how many all the schools have, but the fact that GW built a whole new facility. Yeah. And I was there. I, was work. <laughs> I remember they had been on the sixth floor of the hospital mm-hmm. and, and then all of a sudden the class center was built and I guess you said 2014, that sounds right. And then it was just this wonderful new environment. And I believe they have, give or take, uh, 15 or 16 rooms. Some of them are also like sim rooms with more mannequins and stuff like that. But yeah, I would say most med schools, again, give or take, have around 12. I think that's like a solid amount of encounter rooms that med schools will have so they can really get a lot of students in and out. The one thing about it is that the actual first SP program was in California in 1963. So I think it's interesting that if that started in, why did it take DC area so long? Yeah. Yeah. And you know, when did you start as the SP? When was your first year? It was in 2005, I think. Okay. The first one I actually ever did, I think, was at GW. Yeah, so it, it certainly wasn't in the 60s. Right. <laughs> it's, been, it's been a minute. It's been 60s. a minute. Yes. I have talked to some other standardized patients who have been doing that since the 90s, even since the 80s a little bit. But I don't think I've spoken to anyone yet. And if there's anyone out there that has, I would love to talk to you who's been doing it from the 60s or 70s. Wow, that would be a really cool conversation to have. Because I've been doing it since 2007. And even 2005, I'm like, oh, what was going on in 2005 when you were doing it, Carol, before I was part of it? So it's really cool to see that so many programs all over the country, but of course we have this sample size from this region here, 
that have really expanded their programs and and created programs for that matter, and that you have been graciously compiling this list. And I believe you send out one with Philly and, and a little bit of New York as well from the last workshop. Yeah, I just have some links for them. I haven't actually worked there, so I don't sure. really know. Yeah. I think the fact that there are so many more programs, I think really is a tribute to the medical, to the schools mm. and the medical profession that is recognizing the importance of you know, what we used to call bedside manner, because that's where I think the SP program really, really helps students learn how to interact. They can use a dummy or a mannequin or a technique, but the mannequin isn't going to talk back to them and tell them how it feels. And that's what an SP does. Mm -hmm. What is it like to be in your presence as a patient and with you as the doctor? And Everybody, probably at least one instance when that was not a good experience for them with a doctor. Yes, I can certainly uh, (laughs) agree. Yeah, it means a lot to me to be part of training new doctors who are going to be compassionate, listen to a patient, give them time and attention and, and recognize that as being as important as being able to diagnose, you know, a sore knee. Totally. It's multifaceted for sure. Yeah. (laughs) My dad, when he was going to doctors and I would take him and there was one doctor who spent the entire time with his back to my father tapping notes on his laptop. And, you know, even I would not want that as a doctor, but my father was of the generation when doctors didn't have laptops and they looked you in the eye and they talked to you. And it was all I could do not to jump up with my hands on my hips and say, I am an SP and you flunk. (laughs) I fail you. (laughs) Oh my gosh. It was all I could do. I did change doctors for Mm, my dad. Smart. That was all I could do. But it was very hard not to say, you know, I know what I'm talking about and you, you are not behaving well. You're not treating my father well. I I thought back on that and wished that maybe I had said something. Um, Yeah. But it it certainly does affect when you go to your own doctors, mm -hmm. knowing what you know as an SP. Mm -hmm. It's very empowering. It it is. It is. And I let my doctors know. Then I'm an SP. Good. And how does that typically go for you when you tell them? It's good if they're the right kind of doctor. Of course. Of course. (laughs) Otherwise, they're like, "Uh uh-oh, and then slowly back out of the room like, I don't want to be here. You know, you just wonder the doctors that can't get on board with, you know, patient communication interaction, they're just going to lose a lot of patients. And I'm sure they will probably always have some patients, I would guess, but they will lose more patients as time goes on and people become more empowered about their physical, mental, emotional health, all of those things, because it's getting more and more talked about even just through the internet for that matter, that people are speaking up and saying, you know, I deserve certain things. So I just hope that Sandra's patients, and I think they are, are helping, you know, one little bit at a time, but we, we are everywhere. As <laughs> One thing that you mentioned in your workshop that I thought was really interesting was something about lawsuits. Malcolm Gladwell has written a whole bunch of cool books. And in Blink, he mentioned a study that was done. And I, I've tried to find the study and I only found a couple references online. But there's actually been more than one study where they look at malpractice suits. And the bottom line is that if you like the doctor, you are less likely to file a malpractice suit, even if the doctor is wrong. 
And if you don't like the doctor, you are more likely to file a malpractice suit, even if the doctor is right. Wow. when I was teaching med students, I would tell them this so that, you know, no matter what they might think about touchy-feely, compassionate bedside stuff, you know, if they looked at it that way, look at it as an economic issue. <laughs> Make your patient like you because then they will be less likely to file a lawsuit. That's true because then it becomes much more of a personal situation. Yeah. They did this thing wrong, but you know what? I think it was just a, you know, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt rather than, you know, the claws coming out. That's so interesting though. And it kind of makes sense. Well, yeah. (laughs) I I think about, you know, if a doctor I really like, I thought, I thought that was interesting. I think I can speak for all humans that nobody wants to be sued just generally. Right. Then I imagine in the medical profession, you're at a greater risk of potentially having that situation because so many people's health and even lives are in your hands, depending on what you're doing and and the time. So that can be a really scary prospect going into medicine, I imagine. I haven't done, you know, nearly enough research on it. You know, I don't know much about it, but I, I imagine that anything that can help your patient not sue you is a good thing to keep in mind. Yeah. (laughs) Now, you have been doing this for a long time. One other question about your workshops. What makes you keep doing them? So I know you started out and you do them twice a year. Do you find it's rewarding to see certain people in your workshops come then and you might work with them or just to spread the good word, if you will? I think back to when I was first starting and how hard it was to get information. And I mean, it's all out there. And So I feel like everybody benefits if people who want to do SP work can do it and schools need SPs. The idea of making it easy for people to sign up and and giving them a list, putting it all in one place so they're not having to talk to a bunch of different people or do a lot of searching online. It makes me feel good to connect people with resources. Yeah. Thank you from all of us for doing that. I can tell you when I first started that your workshops, as far as I'm aware, were not around. And mm-hmm. I had to reach out from a castmate and she was so generous right. and gave me the names of a bunch of places. And another castmate of a, the same show kind of reached out to one school in particular and kind of got me in. And it was just through word of mouth, but these right. were very all... nice people that were willing right. to put in the effort for me to have those doors to open. So for you to do that on an even broader scale is very, very cool. And uh, I wonder if there are people in other regions and markets that do that for those markets too. You know, I hope that there are other Carol Randolphs out there that are are generous with their time and efforts in that world, but it, it is very, very neat. So what would right person be for SP work? If you had to say like, this is the perfect type of person for SP work. I don't really think there is a perfect person. That's one of the wonderful things about SP work. It can be any age, any body type, any, I mean, you just have to have the flexibility for the daytime work and be willing to walk around in your underwear with a gown (laughs) and and have people watch you. I did try to do the breast exam Mm. uh, because I believed in that. And I thought of all the places where I could make a difference. It would be with teaching people how to do that. And after one day of, you know, six encounters in a row of being prodded and poked and watched through a window and I just decided I, I can't do that. I have great admiration for the people who can, and especially for the ones who can do 
the genital urinary ones. I, yeah. So I think there are right people for right for certain cases, but there's nothing going into SP work that says you have to be this or you have to have this experience or you really don't. And not everybody is an actor who right. does it. You know, right. so really, you know, anybody. Oh, and one of the things I loved is is the pediatric cases mm. where moms with new babies can get paid when you're home as a stay-at-home mom and you've got this kid, sign them up for SP work. Um, yeah, seriously. So. <laughs> that's a win-win right there. Yeah. yeah. Now, I know in the workshop you had shared a bunch of bloopers. I would be curious to either hear some of those or just your own experience of any funny stories that you've had over the years as an SP. The bloopers I got from other SPs, you know, the poor students, the med students are new. They don't know much more than we do. And so they're going to have bloopers. One of them that I love is the student asked the SP, have you had sex with anyone besides your boyfriend that you can remember? One of the other bloopers students said, I'd like to do your breast exam now, one at a time, if that's okay. Another one was, have you had any surgeries? Yes, a C-section to deliver my son. And do you remember when that was? (laughs) No, black that one out. (laughs) A neurological exam. There are certain things that uh, you're asked to do to test how your nerves are working. And one of them is to walk with one foot in front of the other, like you're on a tightrope. But the student said, walk across the room while keeping your feet together the whole time. And (laughs) so the SP did a bunny hop, keeping Uh her feet together, because that's what she had been instructed to do. Of course, that's epic. (laughs) Yeah. So the the student learns, you know, through that. I guess this SP could have said, what? What right. do you mean? But it's really more instructive. Oh, yeah. Because I'm sure the student had this moment of like, why is she bunny hopping? Oh, right. wait. Oh, I told her to. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Rather than just having somebody be like, I don't know what you're saying. Right. It's much more memorable of right. a teaching skill right. to see that. <laughs> right. The ones I remember are more from when the student wasn't really listening to me. And so maybe they would say, when was the last time you you saw a doctor? And if my answer was something like right after my father died, and then they say, and what did you talk to the doctor about? Or what did you see the doctor mm-hmm. for? Instead of picking up on, I just talked about my father dying. Yeah, the empathy factor right there. Right, right. And, you know, the students are nervous and they're going to do that. The ones, the students that stand out are the ones who go, oh, when was that? Or some kind of empathy. And that's what we're teaching. Right. Is to listen. Treat you like a person. Right. A whole whole person, not just a diagnosis. Right. Not just a checklist, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It is amazing. And I think a lot of times, hopefully, they are able to learn from that, too whether it's through verbal feedback, written feedback, watching their recordings back again. I think most people would hopefully pick up on that. Like, ooh, I should have checked on that. I should have asked about that. Yeah. The material is endless. Yes. (laughs) When it comes to standardized patient work and things that could go wrong, there are so many factors that come into the SP, that come into the student, that come into the case, that come into 
the technology, whether it's Zoom or the speakers, the intercom, any of that stuff. So, and, and it goes back to what you said earlier, which is for new SPs that are looking to get into the work and they're nervous. And so they're asking all of these questions at your workshops that sometimes they just have to do it to really understand, like, is this right for me or is it not? And do it a few right. times and do a couple different types of cases to understand like, oh, this is something that really works well with what I have to offer and my personality type, or, you know what, I could do this, but I'm not feeling it. I think that's just one of those things that people have to figure out on their own once they have the big information, which you're certainly sharing. So when you have done all of these, do you feel like it's meaningful work for you when you're doing standardized patient work or getting people to come into the world of standardized patient work? Oh, yes, because I feel like, well, I know I'm training would-be doctors how to listen to their patients and how to interact as a human being and how to be compassionate. So I, I tend to score them high when they're very compassionate and do a lot of active listening. And some are just, you know, magical at it from the beginning and others, you know, have to work at it. Yeah. But it it does feel like meaningful work. And even when there's, you know, a case like an arm exam or a knee exam or something, and there are special maneuvers that you have to learn, even though I don't really have the pain that I'm supposed to be acting like I have, still teaching them how to move my leg or move my arm or what I can do or can't do is important information for them to know when they're touching a real human being, Mm -hmm. there's a way to do it. Exactly. And draping and draping. Oh my goodness. Yes. That's another whole whole thing. Oh boy. I have had some words about (laughs) draping and it it also is kind of interesting that each standardized patient has their own set of comfort of, you know, what is too hard, what is too soft, what is okay draping privacy wise, what is not, you know? So it really, once again, depends on the, it's a little subjective in many ways, you know, we, we can be yes. very objective in a lot of ways, but that's the cool thing about us being different people and having different comfort levels and interest, you know, being okay with certain things and not okay with other things. And then right. ideally being able to communicate that to our medical professionals, quote unquote, and, and med students. So, yeah. Maybe we should define draping, especially if you're a woman and they have to listen to your heart or press on your abdomen or something, and you're in a gown, the gown has to be removed in some way so they can get to your heart or your lungs. And so there's draping that protects your modesty. They don't just say, drop the gown to your waist, and there you're sitting all exposed. There are ways to cover just one side and expose just one side, and that's called draping. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's certainly when you're lying down and they're doing your stomach and, you know, you have to pull the gown up and then you're exposed at the bottom. So you're draped at the bottom. Yes. That when I was working as a PETA, draping was one of the things that spent a lot of time on. And, you know, some women are okay with just dropping the hospital gown to their waist. I was not. Yeah. And honestly, I could do a whole podcast just talking about draping now that I'm thinking about it, because you're right. It is so important. And especially with PETA work, the the physical examination trainer, it's that type of work can really be important to discuss with med students of why it's important and not only why, but 
perhaps even more importantly, how to do it. So yeah, it can, you know, be whether or not the person has comfort with being uncovered, they still will be covered. They can then choose how to drape themselves once you've done it appropriately. So yeah, thank you for defining that. That was very smart to do. <laughs> um, so many little things come up that we just get used to saying it's SP lingo and medical lingo too. But uh, sometimes I forget. (laughs) Oh, yeah, Yeah. draping, that whole thing. Well, awesome. So, Carol, thank you so much for being here today. We appreciate you. You were a wonderful guest and really appreciate talking about all about how to get into standardized patient work and spreading the love of your workshops and to all future and potential SPs, right? Right. Well, we really appreciate you and we will look out for future workshops as well for anyone that's in the DMV area and and part of the Actors Center. That's something you can keep your eyes out for in the future. But once again, we appreciate you. Thank you, Katie. Of course. And to everyone else, you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at the Standardized Patients Podcast. Thanks to Randy Sharp for the use of our theme song, Mr. Garita. You can find their music at Artlist. Thank you to Catherine Bublack for behind-the-scenes work, audio post-production, and cover art. That's our show. See you next time as we encounter more standards of standardized patient work. (laughs) 